0: Our guest today is an ex-data scientist who got started in multifamily investing. It's kind of crazy, right? This super data guy. And we talk about how he did that, how he went from nothing. And of course, like so many people, there's a journey through single family houses until he finally discovered multifamily. How did that transition go? And he also postulates that numbers are so important for real estate investing in general and multifamily specifically. So we'll talk about that as well, we'll talk about underwriting and how we're gonna adjust some of our underwriting currently in the market as well. Before we get into the show, I wanna give a shout out to Chea Share, and she gave us a review on Amazon for the Yellow Book. She says it's fantastic, practical and detailed book, five stars. Short and to the point, Chair, appreciate that. If you have not read the Yellow Book, do so on Amazon's called Financial Freedom with Real Estate, just like this podcast, check it out. I also want to sh- shout out our first dealmaker, Omer Singer, closed the 16 units in Long Beach, California. It was four and a quarter million dollars. His mentor was Barry Flavin. Love our mentor program. We had a time in Tampa. We had a, a dealmaker boot camp there, and there's so many of our mentors were there and sharing someone's successes they've had. It's just amazing. It's michaelblank.com forward slash mentor. You can check it out, schedule a call with us. It's just an awesome program because we guarantee that you'll do your first syndication in the first year. And when you do your first deal, quit your job, we're going to help you scale to a thousand units and beyond. It is really one of a kind in the world. Check it out, themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. So let's see, we're going to talk about numbers here. The importance of investing is so important, more so than single family house investing. Single-family house investing is actually fairly easy. It's after repair value. You know, a good realtor will help you with that. And then the construction cost and the purchase price. I mean, those are really three main variables. But for multifamily, it's interest rates, right? Interest rates make a difference. It makes a difference when you buy, when you refinance, when you sell. The rent growth is important, right? And you want to make sure that you're not overly aggressive. Even if you're if you're a passive investor and you're looking at these marketing packages from these syndicators, what you're looking for is you're looking for conservative underwriting. I really call this the risk-adjusted return, right? Because there's so many, it just kills me, you know, third 25% return, 18% IRR, right? But then look at the assumptions underneath it. It's not a risk-adjusted return. It's a risky return. And so what I'm saying is the numbers are important because you want to look at the multiple areas of the underwriting that's conservative. Interest rates, you know, they're not going down. You don't want to see interest rates in three years are going down. You want to see them either equal to or at least greater interest rates. The other one is the cap rate, right? The cap rate makes such a, a huge difference. The cap rate is basically a multiple of income that determines the price of a property and that a small swing in the cap rate can make a gigantic difference in price, right? So if you're buying something at a five cap or whatever, you don't want to see a four cap when you sell there's really no fundamental reason for cap rates to go down that much so you're looking for cap rates that are higher which reduces the price same thing for rent growth right if you're seeing 10% rent growth that is not conservative underwriting the other one you want to look at is reserves the amount of reserves that you go into the deal okay at closing so if you have a, a capital or construction budget you should have at least 10% or more when you close you should also retain cash flow emergency reserves as you go along and so if you don't have some of these things, my return is can be wildly higher. Therefore, what you're looking for what you as a passive investor is a risk-adjusted return. And when you're an active investor, you want to sell a risk-adjusted return. What you want to do is make sure that your investors understand the multiple points that you've been using to create a conservative return. So numbers is everything. And Jason Bake, who's a guest here today, would agree with that. He's a managing principal of Compounding Capital Group. He's also the founder of the Underwriting Lab, where he teaches people how to underwrite. And he quit his six-figure corporate job, literally after COVID, before he bought his first property. Why in the world, Jason, did he do that? And he found our SDA, Syndicated Deal Analyzer, early in his journey. It's the most widely used analysis tool on the planet. And it really got him started. And today, he's acquired over 300 units. And the last two and a half years has raised several million dollars. So let's get into Jason's story.
1: Jason, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Excited to be here.
0: Man. Yeah. So you are full-time and you quit relatively recently and built a, a sizable portfolio. And we want to understand that. We also believe that numbers are important for investing, which is outrageous. <laughs> Definitely want to look in and get into that. But how? what was going on in the time when you, why were you thinking real estate? Think back when you're real estate, because I know you have some single family houses as well. Go, go all the way back and go, ooh. Probably start with rich dad, poor dad, like everyone's crazy journey began. But what exactly. was going on in your life where you're scratching your head going, huh, I should look in the real estate. What, what was going on then?
1: You know, so I was a, a point in my corporate career where I felt like I was kind of tired of listening to other people tell me what to do, which, again, comes from a place of coming from a immigrant family. My dad has always been an entrepreneur. So he always wanted me to go into corporate America, but I always wanted to be more like him and kind of start my own thing. And mm. I knew that I wanted to do something on my own. And real estate seemed like the perfect vehicle to start building generational wealth. And I mean, I, I love other investment avenues. Crypto is, is, has its own benefits. Stocks have their own benefits. But real estate seemed like the the only investment vehicle that I could directly more have a control over and kind of build that wealth brick by brick versus, you know, kind of you know, hoping for other companies to, to blow up or anything like that.
0: Was there a particular reason or pain point that you decided to get into real estate? Like, I know you obviously have trouble with authority. Okay, I, I get that. You don't want to be told what to do. But is was there any kind of like moment when, you, when it kind of hits you that you need to do something different?
1: Uh, you know, funny enough, because I'm a data person, I, I tried to look up how most people build generational wealth. And time and time again, all the statistics say that most of the millionaires in the United States are built through real estate. So I figured... I mean, I'm a statistics person, I'm a a data guy, so I gotta follow what the data tells me. So obviously I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, uh, just because I I had no background in real estate, but in hindsight, yeah, couldn't be more grateful to to pass Jason for making that decision because (laughs) I am where I am today because of that.
0: Now, so that's interesting that you came up with that, most millionaires, billionaires are actually real estate, and and so, what was your initial strategy? Right? Was it was it multifamily that you're in right now? Was you were you thinking something else in the beginning?
1: Yeah, I I start off in single family homes. My mentality is of that I'm someone who likes to do something once, but hates to do anything twice. So I need to get down in the weeds to understand the nuances of how a specific business or you know whatever machine works. But I'm also hyper efficient, and I love building processes and systems. So I want to be able to offload as much of the manual labor as possible. And so without any background in real estate, like I honestly barely understood how a house kept itself together. Uh, I didn't even have my own primary home at the time. So I figured I had to start, you know, relatively small. But even the first real estate transaction I did, I bought six single family homes at the same time, because there was just a, a good opportunity for me to kind of pick that up. And so only by going through the pain of hiring a property management company going through all that effort, meeting with them weekly, meeting with the contractor on site, babysitting them you know once a week for, for three or four months at a time, did I feel like I'd be able to get the hands-on experience I needed to succeed in larger assets. And so start off at single-family homes, but with the full intention of scaling to multifamily eventually. I didn't realize I would get sick of single-family homes so quickly and move on to multifamily almost immediately afterwards but yeah that that was sort of how my journey started and i always had a, now- a plan for bigger things
0: now, okay, that's an interesting thing. Where does that come from? Because a lot of people spend years investing in single family houses until they, like me, until they finally scratch their head going, oh my gosh, something is wrong. I don't know what it is, but something is wrong. Now, and so you being a data guy, you got started with a single family house with the intent of doing something bigger and multifamily. Why? And, and why did you come to that conclusion early on? Did the data lead you there some, somehow? Or or why did you come to that conclusion?
1: Yeah, I think part of it is like, I'm such a big proponent of systems that once you have the system into place, I feel like, you know, everything else is kind of just a mental block. Like taking care of seven single family homes or 10 single family homes is about as complicated as taking care of one single family home. You just have to have, you know, more scalability in time, or maybe you hire an assistant or, or something to, to deal with some of the admin stuff. And so I guess part of it's also impatience. I wanted to to get to the level of having a few multifamily units. And I knew that uh, buying one house at a time was just going to be you know, many, many years of hard work versus I could buy a 10 unit or a 15 unit in one given location and scale a lot more efficiently that way. I, I figured out even from owning this a few single family homes, the property management company would charge me hourly for a maintenance guy. And even driving from one address to the other, who charged me 15, 20 minutes of his you know $40 an hour rate. And I realized that even little things like that add up. And similarly, the property management company that I could find that could handle six units versus the ones that I can find to handle you know 30, 60, 80 units, the, the quality is also different. So the more that I did research into real estate, I, I saw a lot of well-established people say that it actually gets easier the larger you go. And so I, I kind of just I worked through the emotional hurdle of being scared of bigger numbers and just decided to kind of go for it, feeling confident in the systems that I built.
0: All right, well let's talk about that for for a second because let's talk about some of the emotions you had, right? So I mean, biting off a six six house portfolio is is actually also pretty significant. I mean, a lot of people have trouble buying a single you know duplex or townhome, but what were you going through at the time when you're buying those houses and then maybe even your first multifamily deal? that you kind of felt you were struggling with, you were stuck with?
1: Oh yeah, I feel like I struggled with almost everything. I I bought in the peak of COVID era, which was arguably the worst market to to buy anything in, in the last decade. And without any experience, it's really hard to project the obstacles that are ahead of you. So even like, you know, last minute, the, the lender wanted me to freeze X amount of money so they'd be more comfortable. Having contractors that didn't work out, I'd have to fire them and try to you know, get new contractors to pick up the slack, going over budget on projects because we opened up walls and found out a bunch of stuff that I didn't know before. And so I felt like it was a an entire year of just running into obstacle after obstacle. But part of what got me through it was this idea that if I can find a modicum of success in the hardest market of the last decade... Everything else moving forward should be easy. And so I kind of, I, I set like a, a time frame for myself. I expected the first year to be incredibly difficult, which it was, but I, I assumed that it would get easier. And I kind of use that as like the light at the end of my tunnel. And I mean, it actually, that's kind of how it transformed my journey. Like as soon as I start getting a little bit of traction, start taking down, you know, a little bit of multifamily, found my current business partner. I feel like the world opened up and just it, traction is such a magical thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the first deals are always, always the, the hardest. So when you transition to, are you, you're, you're data, a data guy. So are you, are you more introverted or more extroverted?
1: Oh, heavily, heavily introverted. Fortunately, my right. wife is very extroverted. So I'll bring her to real estate events if you can talk on my behalf. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I was
0: going to I was going to ask you about that. You know, it's funny, right? It's like this is a problem. The introverted guys, gals are tend to be, you know, a little bit more numbers oriented, uh-huh. very detail oriented, but they have trouble talking to people. Yeah, meanwhile, yeah. meanwhile, the extroverts have trouble with numbers, right? And that's is why they've they've formed such great partnerships and is your partner, your wife or some other partner?
1: No, no. My wife uh, is not involved in real estate at all. She's got her okay. startup. But yeah, my business partner is yeah unrelated. Yeah, just someone I met. It's
0: unrelated. Now, is he, is he like a compliment? Is he more extrovert? Or, or how did you guys... Why did you guys decide to work together?
1: I don't think he is more extroverted. But him and I are both types of people okay i'll also take a step back and say like introverts get a bad rap for you know being (laughs) quiet or super like social i'm not i I love meeting new people i love going to events i just get tired really easily so uh, so him and i are very similar that we we can have a great conversation it's just that i i won't stay out at an event for eight hours and feel exhilarated afterwards so 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 Uh part of what about him uh yes the same exact way so uh, it's funny Uh because sometimes we'll take shifts so like you'll go to like a morning part of the same conference, I'll I'll take it, I'll take it all easy and then we'll kind of move on and I'll take the afternoon so that we can still talk to the same people because they they most of our network know us as a group. So at least there's someone from our company there to you know shake hands and, and talk. But uh yeah, the it's yeah, we we've managed to to find ways to get, get around it. Nice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> How are you guys splitting up the roles in the partnership?
1: So I am much more of the technical back end. So I do the underwriting for us, help with the systemization help you know if our virtual assistant needs any help with you know making sops i'm kind of the one that takes the lead on that i do all of the financial asset management where i I have a a large spreadsheet for all of the the properties that we own make sure that you know our our bank accounts have liquidity and i do the construction rehab draws because i have all the numbers and then my business partner is a boots on the ground so he lives in cincinnati which is our target market He's amazing at construction. Like he doesn't have a background in construction, but he just knows so much about it. So he manages the contractors. He meets with the brokers in person, kind of brings them to coffee, and make sure that you know everything you know in person goes smoothly.
0: That's pretty cool. What about capital raising? Have you are we raising the capital or, or how are you funding your deals?
1: Yes. So we've raised capital for our own deals. Obviously, we did a uh, syndication last year that we are the lead sponsor on that we raised all the capital for directly in house. We've also done co-sponsor deals where we've raised, you know, whatever amount of money for other teams and, you know, help them with some processes or asset management. But we don't consider ourselves to be like core capital raisers as like a a strength. We have a, a pretty good network of other capital raisers that hopefully we'll continue to tap into. We see ourselves as building more of a brand. We're not necessarily looking to, you know, try to raise for a specific deal, but we just like meeting people and going to events and getting our names out there.
0: That's cool. So who's involved in the, on the capital raising? Is that you or more your partner or a little bit of both?
1: A little bit of both. And it's, it's a role that we share just because we don't, neither of us want to have that as being a, like a primary role. And so even like coming on to like, you know, podcasts like this is, it's not to raise capital for anything specifically, but it's just, yeah. So that people know my face and I can meet new people.
0: Yeah. So partnerships are so common in this business. What is, what do you think makes this one work?
1: So, before I met Jay, my current business partner, I tried to do the thing of like a ragtag group of random newbie investors trying to make LOIs together. And in hindsight, I'm very grateful that I did not actually end up closing on any deals with the bunch of like random people that I used to make offers with. And I met Jay very organically through a network of people that I kind of just stumbled upon just by asking people, Hey, what other networks are you part of? Do you have any other people that? would be cool to meet. And so after almost like a year of networking and just asking to, to meet people, get on casual Zoom calls, like no strings attached type of things, I met Jay. We got along really well. We kept in touch for maybe two to three months just over weekly Zoom calls. And then I met him in person at one of the large real estate events. I flew over to Cincinnati for a week to just hang out with him in person. And over that week, we were able to grab dinners, grab lunches, take a look at properties, just like have a good time, tell jokes. And I feel like that. Only after I did all of that did I feel comfortable. Yeah, this this is the guy that's going to be my business partner. Like, not only does but
0: you met online.
1: Yeah, basically. yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's so person. it's so common. It's so common, especially through COVID, right? And what I love about that is that you you met someone online on Zoom call or some co- online conference, and then you just stay in touch with that person. Yeah. And that's such a great way to meet so many people. I mean, yes, jumping in a plane is great, but you can do so much also online. I love how you did that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I feel like there's a lot of people think that there's some like, you know, secret sauce to finding a partner, but it's just like, you know, good old fashioned networking. Just you got to try a few things out and yeah, see if you can connect with the right individual or or group.
0: Let's talk about your first deal or, or second deal. What, what were some of the challenges that you faced switching from single family to, to multifamily?
1: Getting more of the background in how multifamily is built was actually quite difficult. So in in single families, I used to spend like forty to fifty thousand dollars for a renovation because it was a, a single family home. And multifamily, I've now learned, even anything above twenty thousand is pretty expensive. And so, cutting down on costs was a Definitely a major hurdle, and even understanding how you know utilities were set up that they're they're metered separately, and I can track them individually per tenant, or if not, I have to you know provide chargeback rubs. And so the the actual nuances of the differences, it took some time for me to internalize, just because I was so familiar with you know I, I've got a house, I've got one tenant living in there, and then that that is what it is. And I think multifamily is much more of a business than single families is one single families i can take down by myself i don't don't have to be held accountable to business partners or passive investors but with multifamily even the underwriting right i i would not call single family home analysis underwriting it's more you know you can do it on like a single excel spreadsheet and just be like i pay this much i'm going to refi this much. it's like very simple back of the napkin math but with multifamily because you've got returns that you have to give because you have a gp shares because you have you know, a bunch of other levers that you need to pull, you have to model it, which I actually enjoy much more. But I wouldn't necessarily call myself like a single family home investor. It felt more like hobby. I was kind of trying to figure it out. But when I entered multifamily, and and now I feel much more like a multifamily investor who's doing this professionally.
0: If you want to work with a full-time syndicator to help you get up to speed faster, get your first deal done this year, and scale your portfolio so you can quit your job, then check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. It's the only program out there that actually guarantees results. That's right. We actually guarantee that you do your first deal in the first year. Otherwise, we'll keep working with you and set up a a strategy session call and explore whether it's right for you. It's themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. You mentioned analysis a lot, right? And you're data and data guy. And that's what you do. That's what your job was. Now, tell me, what was your last Day of work, like, because people knew who was Jason, the data guy. You know, whatever. What was that like? What reaction did you get?
1: So a lot of people actually knew that I was leaving to to not pursue another day job to try to do something uh, on my own. So, I mean, I worked in a great work environment. I mean, it was a lot of hours. It was it was tough, but I liked everyone that I worked with. Even my my bosses were great. And so the last day was actually a little bit relieving because I felt like I was. Uh, It's a blur of relief and also fear and anxiety because I was finally going to be able to do what I wanted to do, but also I was entering this new world where I I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So it was definitely a blend of emotion. I do have actually a funny story that I sometimes tell about my last day where, uh, you know, most people have like an exit interview and I had one with my managing partner. And I remember the ex interview so very clearly because she asked me how many homes i had because she assumed that obviously any smart person would have some sort of experience before quitting a, a nice cushy day job but i was so nervous and i i didn't want to admit that i was just going cold turkey so i actually i kind of dodged the question i almost lied where i i kind of brushed it i was like oh yeah I, I have a few homes but you know i'm, I'm just gonna you know keep getting some more And I remember just because it was such a funny moment in hindsight that I felt like I had to white lie to my boss, who I was very close with. But I was almost embarrassed to admit that I was giving up my decade-long career just for absolutely the promise of potentially being an investor.
0: So you quit cold turkey before
1: you had a single house? Yeah, yeah. Barely didn't know a Gopher. So yeah, cold cut. So why, why did you do
0: that, right? Because there's, there's, there's always different approaches, right? Some people, they want to get their first deal so they can see it working. Some people wait far too long. You said, screw it, I'm burning the boats. Why did you decide to do that?
1: So as reckless as it may seem on the surface, <laughs> I, I sort of know myself pretty well in that I'm really good at focusing on one thing. I figured that it was actually a bigger risk to juggle both a full-time demanding day job and also try to invest because I feel like I would suck at both. And so. It wasn't a decision that I made like, you know, two weeks before I decided to just quit. It was years in the making where I decided to treat myself more as a startup, where I would save up a little bit of runway, like, you know, every penny I didn't need to put it towards expenses, I put it into a nice bank account. And then after I felt like I had enough cash, I decided to make the shift so I can devote full-time attention to something that I was passionate about. And the funny thing is that, like I set myself like an arbitrary number, like say it's like, you know, like X, right? Even after I passed it, it still took me three months to put my two weeks notice in, just because it's frightening to to make that big of a jump. But I always figured that I'm married, so my life is pretty stable. I don't have kids, so it's not that chaotic. So I figured if I don't do it now, I'm going to regret it. And I'm not going to be able to enjoy this level of bandwidth in, in, the, in the near future. So I figured I, I had to take the leap.
0: So how did your wife react? You know, you're quitting your job and now you're loafing around at 2.30 in the afternoon when you're supposed to be at work. <laughs>
1: yeah she's incredibly supportive so funny enough she made the leap into entrepreneurship a few years before and i so i blame her because i was jealous of the type of life that she was leading and so she started like a cybersecurity startup and so we didn't plan it this perfectly but i still had a you know a nice high paying day job when she quit her career to do her startup full-time and then a few years later, once she had a little bit of traction, she was making enough money where, you know, she could pay her bills easily. That's when I felt like I just like subconsciously was like, now is the time for me to make the move because I felt like we weren't going to starve. We're like, we, we weren't going to, you know, like get kicked out of our house because I couldn't pay the mortgage. So it was it was like a phased effort, but it, it wasn't planned that way at all. It, it sort of just happened that way.
0: That's awesome. They'll so brag a little bit. How many how, how many units do you have right now and, and roughly how much money were you able to raise?
1: Today, about 350 units, apartments. I, I still own the seven single family homes that I own. And in terms of money raising, yeah, we're not capital raisers, but we've raised, you know, a few million dollars in the last few years for, for our own projects. And when we're co-sponsors, it will be like much smaller amounts, but just to get, you know, in on deals with all the other partners. That,
0: that's amazing. Jason, that's fantastic. Now you, you said, well, you said that, you know, numbers are super important for investing real estate investing why do you why do you think it's so important?
1: That's a great question. I think as a data person I always say that I can trust numbers and I can see through numbers especially when words can hide things. and so I I love the idea that numbers are objective that they are you know the closest source to truth and I, I love marketing I love sales very important but for me as a data person it's a lot easier for me to look at a spreadsheet tear it apart and understand something that I am afraid that you might be hiding. I, I'm always the pessimist. I'm always the one that always thinks worst case scenario. And so, yeah, much prefer to make sure that I understand the numbers portion of it, that I feel comfortable with the level of risk that's being undertaken before blindly trusting someone with with you know X amount of money. I, I think that's actually a common misconception too in multifamily real estate and also underwriting where... You know, if you're not number savvy, you might think like, oh, you just find anyone who's good with numbers and they can be your underwriter. But even if you find a good underwriter, your risk tolerances might be very different. And even if I'm not meaning to screw you over, if I think a deal is perfectly fine, but it might actually be too risky for you, I don't know. Like, I can't read your mind. And so there might be miscommunication. And so... I always think that people should at least understand the basics of being able to analyze a deal so that you can just make the right decision for for your investing journey.
0: Now, we have an analysis tool called a syndicated deal analyzer, probably the most widely used analysis tool on the planet now. And you found that earlier on. And how are you using or how did you start using it or how are you using it now?
1: Yeah, it was, I don't know if it was the first one I found, but it's definitely the one that I use for the longest and the most frequent. And I think I actually found it just through word of mouth. I would ask people, hey, like, what are you using to take a look at multifamily deals? And, you know, absolutely everyone would say, Michael Blanc's SDA. And so I kind of found it organically. And it was one of the ones that, because so many people were used to using it, that me learning how to pull the levers of that specific model helped me speak the same language as everyone else. And so it was tremendous help in sort of bridging that gap, especially because I, I had no idea what was going on when I first started in multifamily. And so being able to talk the same language, being able to show people like, hey, I could fill in this model and I know how to play around with some things of it, kind of had people trust me more, even though I didn't have direct experience, that I could at least understand the basics of the the business of multifamily investing. And so, yeah, it was a, a great resource, the best, I don't know how much you charge for it today, but the best, like, you know, a few hundred dollars that I ever spent.
0: Yeah, that's cool. If you guys want to check out the SDA syndicated deal analyzers at themichaelblank.com forward slash SDA. And it's a great way to start underwriting deals that you were coming across on LoopNet, et cetera, kind of like Jason did is a great way to kind of get your feet wet. Now, how are you, I mean, the the market is always changing very rapidly. Mm -hmm. How are you adjusting your underwriting right now to look at deals
1: right now? Uh, Yeah. So the underwriting business, or sorry, the the business of multifamily that we look to enact hasn't really changed uh, across you know different markets and so we still have a value-add business plan that we're looking to buy stuff for the right price inject human capital and you know build up that equity with with that strategy the way that underwrite has had some tweaks we definitely don't factor in a refi anymore just because you know two years ago you could bank that refi rates were going to be relatively in your favor so today, I don't try to factor in a refi. I'll, I'll I'll tell my investors that hopefully I take out you know a supplemental loan in eighteen months so that we can return some cash. But I don't want to make assumptions just because you know it's volatile. There's a lot of stuff that I read or I try to stay on top of in terms of you know macroeconomic trends. But at the end of the day, everyone's still you know making educated guesses. So I, I try to keep the bar very low every time I take a look at a deal. Similarly, whenever we're you know projecting rent growth, I try to keep it on the low end so that we're not aggressive and we're banking on you know natural market appreciation to carry our deals forward. And yeah, we're we're always also making offers at the numbers that make this the most sense for us. We we've typically always done that, but more so than ever, we're kind of sticking to our numbers. And fortunately, we, we've actually experienced where a lot of sellers are a little bit more reasonable. They're they're willing to meet us maybe halfway between our offer and they're asking. Now we don't have to do hard EMD anymore. We don't have to close in thirty days. So there's a few concessions on the seller side. And so we kind of hold strong to our criteria. And we're not really desperate for our next deal. So we're kind of just waiting for, for whoever comes along our way.
0: What are your goals for you this year from the on the buying side or anything like that?
1: Yeah, so we definitely want to grow. I think even today. So I meet with my business partner, Jay, on a daily basis, pretty much. And even today we continue to talk through what this market means for us and for us to keep evolving and, and stay on top of things. Last year we wanted to try and scale and you know take on bigger deals, stick to 100, 150 unit deals. but even today they're still a little overpriced and so we're doubling down on DTS efforts. So even if we can find a solid 40 unit that has amazing returns, maybe that will be our focus. So we're, we're actually trying to stay nimble and try to react in real time to how the market shifts and not necessarily be too focused on we definitely like we always need to take down 100 unit because we're in a like a tertiary market Cincinnati so it's not like the deal flow is is tremendous so we have to yeah go along with the flow a little bit more
0: that's awesome Jason how can people connect with you
1: yeah so I mean I'm active on LinkedIn and Facebook Jason Bake B-A-I-K our website is compoundingcapitalgroup.com. I also teach other people how to underwrite. So if you're interested in you know learning a bit more about how I've learned, the theunderwritinglab.com is my education platform. So those are-
0: That's awesome. Crazy. That's great. So check out Jason, follow him and see what he's doing. It's been great to talk to you about the importance of numbers and of course, getting started with multifamily real estate. So thanks so much for being on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: Now, while I wouldn't always recommend it, Burning the boats, I have a lot of respect for what Jason did. I really do. I mean, it's clearly when you are full-time you're going to get to your goal much faster. I think that's what he was thinking. Maybe he had some reserves his wife has, was more successful in her business. So he had a runway, right? You got six to 12 months in in savings. That is enough time for you to get into multifamily. A lot of respect for Jason for doing that. And whenever someone does that, there can be no failure, right? Because once you leave a job, you don't want to be clawing back. So you must succeed. So I have great respect. Other people typically leave their jobs after the first deal. And the reason is because that first deal is so important. We call, talk about the law of the first deal all the time. Because by the time you close your first deal, you'll probably have your second deal already in a contract, you have this pipeline form. And more importantly, you have typically a very large acquisition fee that gives you a long runway, right? So imagine you're only buying a $2 million building 3% of that. You know, sixty thousand dollars. and I get that right? 60000 dollars in in acquisition fees and, and that's a lot, right? And if you join venture, you're not buying a two million dollar building, you're probably buying something around five to ten million dollars. So the acquisition fees can be a meaningful thing. And so I love that he did that and he really got under underway. What I also love is that he says, I'm gonna get started with single family houses, but he already had an eye towards multifamily. I can forgive that. Okay. I can forgive you buying a duplex if you feel it's a stepping stone. To something greater. It's not necessary. We talk about it on, on this podcast all the time. You can skip that entirely. But the difference is mindset. As I'm going to buy a small single family or duplex with the intent of getting a multifamily, That's vastly different than someone who wants to build a portfolio of single family house investing and thinks they can become financially free as well. Again, numbers is so important. I think that's really the message here today. Numbers are so important, whether you're an active investor or you're a passive investor, right? It's so important. If you're a passive investor, you want to invest with someone that really is conservative in their underwriting, ideally has track record. Now, our investment company is called Nighthawk Equity, and we we kind of think we have that. We've analyzed deals very well. We have uh, have thousands of, of units under, under management. We'd love to have a conversation with you. If you're a passive investor looking to invest in syndications, check us out at nighthawkequity.com and then just schedule a call. Click the join button to join our investor club and let's have a conversation about one of our upcoming deals. But it's so important. I think the message of a risk-adjusted return is really important. I think there was a time, you know, maybe before COVID where people were just looking at returns and what could possibly go wrong. And it just kills me, right? Some other syndicator has a higher return than my deal, right? And it irritates me because the investors are going to go to the higher return. But when you when you look under the hood and you look at the assumptions, they're not conservative or maybe one's conservative, the other one's aggressive. In other words, it is not really a risk-adjusted return. And so as a passive investor, you want to look at the consumptions that a deal has. So it's not just a return, but ask, look at the assumptions, look at the interest rates, the cap rates, the interest rate, the reserves. We talked about that earlier in the intro, really look at that. And if you are an active investor and you're you're trying to raise capital, really hammer home the risk adjusted return. So you're looking for something with reasonably low risk in a reasonable return coupled together. So that's really important. Numbers are very important. So let's stop listening to podcasts. Let's get a deal done. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to the
1: vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.